Well, what a, what a great intro to our new series, Whose Child Is This? And have you ever seen a child do something like at a store or just in public and you're like, you, you see them do so, they're acting totally crazy and you're like, whose child is that? Like so, someone come and get their child because they are going crazy. Or what's probably happened to more of us is that it's your child that's acting crazy. And instead of claiming them in that moment, you're like, whose child is that? I don't know. Someone, somebody's parents need to come get this child. It's not my child. And you know, I've had, I know like I, I, I'm supposed to like have this mask in light of Brandon's series, you know, being this perfect person, this perfect pastor, always having the, you know, the, the, the right thing to say in the right moment and the right heart, the right attitude and all that kind of stuff. But, but nothing really, I'm just gonna be honest with you, nothing can be further from the truth. Okay. I am, I am not perfect. Okay. And my family that's here knows this about me. I, I am not perfect. So, so about a few months ago, we're in Ikea in the Metroplex on a Sunday, okay? And I don't know if you've ever been to Ikea on a Sunday, but it's pretty crowded, okay? There was people everywhere, okay? And so we're in Ikea and we're looking for stuff, we're looking for a couch, and, and um, my, my kids are, are arguing, okay? My two boys, Levi and Coben, are arguing, and all of a sudden, I see out of the corner of my eye, Levi push Coben so hard that Coben launched up into the air and crashed into the display and the stuff on the cabinet or the, the shelves went everywhere. The, the, the shelf collapsed, like stuff went everywhere. Okay. And in this moment, okay. And, and some of you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. You can go from the spirit to the flesh in like 0.5 seconds, okay? And, and so, you know, I'm in the spirit in Ikea, you know, and, and my kids are arguing and Levi pushes him and Coben's flying through there. And he crashes into the thing. I go from the spirit to the flesh in 0.5 seconds and I say, what the heck? But the other word, are you doing? And they froze. They froze, okay? Because they don't hear me say that often. Okay. They don't, they don't. And so they froze. Levi panicked. He said, mom, dad said, hell, dad said, hell, like, dad said, hell, like, what do we, what do we do? Okay. Now, before you judge me, okay, <laughs> let him who is without sin or mom's her, maybe without sin, cast the first stone. So they are freaking out. They are panicked. And it's in this moment in the middle of Ikea with all these people around. And thank God I was in the Metroplex and not here in, in Lubbock when this happened. But, but it, this happens and you want to be like, whose kids are those? They're not mine. Like someone needs to come and get their kids. And you know, people said the same thing about Jesus often. Like they, they were thinking, who, where, where does this kid come from? Who, who is this guy? What, what city is he from? Who are his parents? In fact, in Luke 2, there was so much debate and question around. In Luke 2, when talking about the genealogy of Jesus, they, they go, they're going through the genealogy of Jesus and they say, but, but and Jesus was the, the son of Joseph or so it was thought. So it was thought. Like, well, what do you mean? No, no, Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary, like we all know that, but even the writer of Luke is recognizing the context and the culture of the day that these guys really, they didn't know where Jesus came. They didn't, they, there was confusion surrounding that. They didn't know. In fact, there was 
One time, when Jesus began his ministry, he goes into the synagogue. He reads from the prophet Isaiah a passage concerning the Messiah. And he says to the crowd in the synagogue, Jews and Pharisees, teachers of the law, these real religious people, he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. And they left there and it says that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, 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 these Jews, they were thinking, wait a second, how could he be the Messiah? He's Joseph and Mary's son. I mean, they were literally saying this. And they knew that by him claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus was saying, I'm actually the son of God. Like you think I'm just Joseph and Mary's son, and that's true, but I'm actually the son of God. I'm the Messiah. Today, the Messiah, this passage concerning the Messiah, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they freaked not only were they confused, not only were they were wondering, like, but, I, but we thought this guy was Mary and Joseph's son. They also, because of what he said, wanted to kill him. And it said they tried to get him and they tried to take him to the edge of this cliff and throw him off the cliff and kill him because he claimed to be the Messiah, the son of God. And they're like, wait a second, you can't, you can't be the son of God. You can't be the Messiah. You're Mary and Joseph's son. How could that be? The Messiah, the Messiah is supposed to be this king that will rule in the line of David forever. The Messiah, they thought the Messiah was going to have all this power and money and riches and army and, and this warrior that would come and rescue them from their bondage to Rome or to whichever occupying government or country had them at the time. I mean, they were thinking this is who the Messiah would be. And so they're looking at Jesus, this carpenter's son, and they're saying, he's a poor carpenter's son. How can, he's from Mary and Joseph. He couldn't be the Messiah. Where is this guy coming from? Who does he think he is? And so there's a lot of confusion surrounding Jesus and where he came from and whose child he was. And in this series, we're going to be talking about whose child was Jesus. And there's more than one answer. And I think the answers will surprise you. And so if you've got a Bible to help us answer this question today, I want you to open up to Isaiah chapter 53. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of our prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. And so we're going to answer the question, was Jesus really the Messiah? Because Jesus claimed to be, he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the son of God. And so Jesus, there's only three options, could only be a liar a lunatic, he was crazy, he thought he was the Messiah, he thought he was the Son of God, or he is who he said he was and he is Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's your only three options for Jesus because of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Messiah, he claimed to be the Son of God. So he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, and he is who he said he was, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we're gonna go to one of the over 300 predictive prophecies about who the Messiah would be, and we're gonna look at it and break it down and, and talk about, is Jesus the Messiah. And so as we read through Isaiah 53, I'll have the verses here on the screen for you in just a second. But as we read this, I, I want you to, if you've got a Bible, you got your phone, I want you to get this out and read this for yourself and ask yourself this question. As you read these verses, who is him? Who is he? Who is him that Isaiah, this prophet is referring to? You see, Isaiah is writing 
in a time where before and, and during the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had David and, and, and then you had his son Solomon. And then, and then after him, the kingdom because of rebellion and idolatry and all kinds of things, was divided into two. You've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and now Isaiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was, and he's writing and he's warning the kings, just like they would, many of the prophets would do. They would warn them of the sin of the nation, that God would judge them, but that ultimately God would send a Messiah, a Savior, to rescue them, not only from their present trouble, but from their eternal trouble. And so Isaiah is writing here and he's speaking of this Messiah that would come. And he gives a little bit different picture in this passage of who this Messiah would be and what he would be like. But as we read this again, knowing this is written six to 700 years before the time of Jesus, ask yourself this question, who is he? Who is the him? Isaiah 53, starting in verse three, it says this, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he, again, this, this Messiah, the son of God that will come and restore Israel and restore their kingdom one day, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So wait, so this, this, this Messiah, this he, he yes, he's, he's going to be this king in the line of David. He's going to rescue us, but he's also going to be afflicted and stricken and, and punished. And we're going to look at him and not esteem him as this Messiah. How, how is this? How is this possible? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, our sin. That wouldn't have made sense. They're, they're thinking, what, what are you talking, Isaiah, what do you mean? Like, the Lord doesn't lay on people at this time the sin of someone else. He, he lays it on a lamb or a bull that would have been killed in their place and taken the punishment for their sin. But no, no, now we're, we're, we're seeing that this Messiah is going to be punished and pierced. And our iniquity is going to be laid on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He died. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked? The Messiah, he dies? Like, no, 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 no. That's not supposed to happen. But Isaiah said, no, no, no. The Messiah is going to die. And, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, so after he suffered and died, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So, so now this, this Messiah who, who dies in our place and is pierced for our sin, he dies, he's laid to rest, in, but now he's seeing the light of life. In other words, he's been brought back to life. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who is he? Who, who, who is this him. I mean, Israel and Judah, Israel as a whole, the Hebrew people had to be thinking, Isaiah, who are you talking about? You're talking about the Messiah, but you're talking about him in a way we, we haven't understood. We haven't heard before. This is different. But Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet speaking of who this Messiah would be and what he would do and what he would accomplish and, and how he would do it. Yet, even after Jesus had risen from the dead, he said he was the Messiah, he proved it after, with his resurrection. And to this day, many, sadly, many Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Many have come to faith in Christ. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah because of this ver these verses and, and, and other things. But sadly, many have rejected him as their Messiah. And you wonder why? I mean, why? When we, when we read things like this, who is he, who is him? Most of us would probably read this and say, it can't be anyone other than Jesus. No one else fits this bill. It, it has to be Jesus. And many Jews, Jews for Jesus, completed Jews, Messianic Jews, have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because of Isaiah 53 and so many other things that Jesus fulfills in his birth and life and death, things that he was outside of his control. Over 300 predicted prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. A month ago, I... Heard about a man, he was telling his story about how in college he was a Jew and his friend kept inviting him to church and trying to share the gospel with him. He's like, hey, but I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm not going with you to church. I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, uh, uh, that's not for me. And his friend kept bothering him and asking him to, to come to church to me. He kept saying, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not going. Just, just, just leave me alone. And, and so his friend finally he got out a sheet of notebook paper and he wrote Isaiah 53 word for word on a sheet of notebook paper. But he didn't say where it came from. He just wrote out this chapter that we just read. And at the end, he said, who is him? Who is him? Who's the, who's the him? And so he gave it to his friend. He said, hey, would you read this and answer that question for me at the end? And so his friend reads it, not knowing where it came from. Not knowing that this is from the Bible. Not knowing this is Isaiah 53. He reads it and at the end he says, who is him? And he can't help but think, this is talking about Jesus. But here's what he said. I'd never read this before. 
I never read this before because you see, in our synagogue readings, we never read this. And so he went to one of the local rabbis, he set up a meeting and, and went to meet with him. And he said, hey, my friend gave me this and, uh, so, and, and it's Isaiah 53. I had no idea where this came from. And he, he asked his rabbi, he said, who, who is this? Who is the, the hymn that it's talking about here in Isaiah 53? And his rabbi said this. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He said, yeah, it sounds a lot like Jesus. Who else could it be? His rabbi said, it does sound a lot like Jesus, but we just can't get there. He said, why have I never heard this before? And he said, we skip Isaiah 53 in our regular synagogue readings. They go from 52 to 54. This man continued to study. He continued to look through and pour through all the prophecies of who the Messiah would be. And he ended up giving his life to Jesus, believing Jesus was the Messiah. Years later, that man would become a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Because he couldn't shake Isaiah 53, who is him? It could only be Jesus. It could only be Jesus. And so, so why is it that so many during the time of Christ and since then, why have so many rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the, the son of God? And I think there's at least a few reasons and we're going to walk through some of those real quick as to why the, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people in, in total, not all, but many have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. There's at least a few reasons that we learn in the New Testament as to why the, at least the Pharisees and other teachers of the law, why they were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Number one, first reason, pride. It was pride. Paul wrote in Romans 9 in chapter 10, he said this, that Israel missed out on their Messiah. And he said this, he said, Israel sought to establish their own righteousness and would not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness, he said, and so they would not submit to God's righteousness. Paul would say in Romans 9, and so they pursued righteousness as if it were by works. Righteousness or being righteous is just a big word that just really simply means being right with God, being right with God. And so Paul said that Israel sought to establish their own right standing with God. They didn't realize that the law was given to show them that they could not be righteous. They could not be right with God as far as they were concerned. And so Israel sought to establish their own righteousness rather than submitting to God's way of being righteous. You see, God's way of making people righteous is not by works or by being a good person. 
And many of us have been on that road and, and maybe some of us are on that road right now. We're seeking to be righteous, right with God by our own works, by being a good person. When the Bible says salvation is not a reward for the good things that you've done. In other words, good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. If you're seeking to be right with God by your own effort and by your own works and by your own good deeds, maybe just somehow hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and then God will let you into heaven one day, you will be disappointed and you will hear, depart from me, I never knew you, go away into eternal destruction. And it's pride that keeps us from saying, I'm not a good person. I'm not good. I've messed up. I've fallen short of God's standard. And so I need help. That's a humbling thing to say. I, I need help. I, I need someone to save me. I need someone to rescue me because I can't do it on my own. Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you study the law, the scriptures. He said, you study the scriptures. And at that point in time, it was the law. You study the law and you try to do it and you try to perform because by that, you think you will have eternal life and you don't realize, you don't understand that the law, the scriptures point to me, your savior. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to heaven except through me, Jesus said. And so there's the stumbling block. There's the, the stumbling block that the prophets predicted would cause Israel to stumble. They would seek to establish their own righteous standing before God rather than submitting to God's way of making us righteous, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, where righteousness is given to us as a gift because of God's grace. So Jesus said, you... You think the law and doing it and studying it's going to make you righteous, it's not. I alone can make you righteous. And so the stumbling block, Jesus, our Savior, because we have to come to him and say, I can't do it. I need your help. I need you to rescue me from my sin. And so I submit myself to you and to God's way of making me righteous. So the first reason they missed out on their Messiah was pride. Jesus said, I came to call the sick, not those who think they are healthy. And the Christian has said, I am sick. I am sick. I am broken. I can't do this. Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me from my sin. I need your Righteous standing. I need you to give that to me so that I can be right with God too, just like you are. You see, the, all that the, the Christian does is acknowledge they're, they're sick and they need a doctor. But to do that means humbling yourself. And Paul says in Romans 9 and 10, Israel could not do that. They, because of their pride in their hearts, they could not, Submit to God's way of making us righteous. Two, first reason is pride. Second reason is comparison. Comparison. 
Israel was always wanting what other people had. And so God would warn them often, hey, quit looking around at what all the other nations do and and what they have. Quit quit doing that because that's only going to lead you away from me. Yet Israel continued to do that. They would look around at other nations and what other nations had and they would want the same things. That's what led them to asking for a king. They come to the prophet Samuel and say, hey, all the other nations, they all have kings. Give us a king so we can be like them. Samuel goes to God and says, God, I, they, they, they want a king. And, and, and God tells Samuel, he says this, go ahead and give them the king. They have rejected me as their king. So go ahead and give them one. And the reason they rejected God as their king was because they kept looking around at what everyone else had. Everyone else had a king, they wanted a king. Everyone else had an army, they wanted an army. Everyone else had riches, they wanted riches. Everyone else had a temple, and so they wanted the, the physical temple, the place on, on earth. For I mean, they looked around and they couldn't help but compare themselves to everyone else around them. And it led them away from the heart of God. It led them away into idolatry because they continued to want what other people had. Don't miss this. Comparison is always the thief of joy. Comparison is always the thief of peace. Comparison will always lead you away from God. And we are in an age where we can compare ourselves so quickly with a touch of a button. We can compare my life and the highs and lows to everyone else's highlight reel. And we compare ourselves and comparison will always steal your joy. Comparison will always steal your peace and it will lead you away from the heart of God because you will begin to make idols of the things that other people have that you don't have. And so how did this lead them away from their Messiah? Well, when Jesus shows up, he's a carpenter's son, he's poor, there's nothing in him that they want. They want a king. They want a a Herod or a Caesar, someone with power and money and an army. Because that's what the kingdoms around them have. And so they missed the heart of God and their Messiah who came as the suffering servant, as the son of a carpenter. And then third, finally, they missed out because they were nearsighted. They were nearsighted. Now, if you know, if you wear glasses or whatever, you, you, you know what I'm talking about here, okay? Uh, I, I am nearsighted. I can see things close up. I can't see things far away. And so I wear contacts and then I also wear my much maligned, I don't understand why, glasses. But um, so, so, so I wear those things. Well, in, in ninth grade, okay, I decided I wanted to look cool. And so I ditched the glasses. I wouldn't wear them anymore. And uh, it seemed to work because when I walked into my ninth grade math class, uh, my friend at the time, Darby, who is now my wife, said when I walked in, it was like the heavens parted and open. I came in. She thought I was the hottest thing I'd ever seen. I, I, I had bl- this, this stuff in my hair that made it blonde. And, and I had these socks that went up to my knees. And, and I, had my, I was rocking my Tommy Hilfiger polo shirt. And, and so I walk in with no glasses. And she thinks that I'm the hottest thing she's ever seen. And so it seemed to work, okay? Here was the only problem. When I was not wearing glasses, I couldn't see the chalkboard. 
And so then I just did this the whole class. Well, that doesn't look too hot anymore, right? I mean, I'm just squinting. I, I can't see anything. And so then Darby from across the room would start to make fun of me and she would make that face back to me, shaming me into getting contacts one day. Okay, so, so I'm nearsighted. Okay, the same thing, the same struggle I would have when I would go hunting with my dad. He's driving and he's wanting me to, to spot for deer or elk, you, you know, or when we're walking around and I can't see anything. But strangely enough, my dad could drive a truck down a road and look in the woods and spot elk and deer in the woods while still driving the car. Now he may have almost run off the road a few times, but, but he could spot the elk and the deer through all the trees, through all the, the outward stuff in the way. He could see them and he could spot them. And I was always so surprised that he could see the, the deer and the elk past all the trees and brush and bush. He could see them. And I couldn't, even with glasses, even with context, he could see things that I couldn't see. You know, the same thing was true with Israel. In fact, when Israel asked for a king, they got Saul and then God rejects Saul as king. And David is anointed as king. Well, when Samuel goes to anoint David as king, he's looking at David's brothers because David's brothers are, are bigger and more handsome and they're stronger. They look the part. But then the Lord tells Samuel something huge. He says, no, I, they're not going to be the king. I've rejected them as kings. He said, look at David. And the Lord tells this to Samuel, you, Israel, you guys, you're always looking at the outward appearance. But the Lord does not look at those things. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. You see, Israel continued to be blinded by all the show by the outward appearance of things. And they couldn't see what God saw the heart. And they couldn't see that even though they had the outward show down, even though they had the religious stuff down, the rituals and all those kinds of things, the sacrificial system and the, and the, and the, uh, the, the food and all those kinds of the dietary laws and restraints, even though they had all those things down, they couldn't see through all that, that their hearts were far from God. In fact, God would say through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29, he would say, listen, your lips, you're honoring me with your lips. You've got all the outward stuff down, but your hearts are far from me. Your heart is what I'm looking for. It's what I'm looking at. And because Israel was nearsighted and they couldn't see what God was seeing, their hearts, they didn't realize how far they had strayed away. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And when we go astray and we go our own way, because of our pride, because of comparison, because of our nearsightedness, it leads to missing out on God's will, his plan, his heart, his best for your life. It always does. And so many have missed out on their 
Messiah for these reasons and others. But before you judge them, before you cast the stone, let's remember that we miss out on the heart of God and what God wants for us and God's best for these exact same reasons. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, what, what, what does that mean? What, what, what does it mean if Jesus is the Messiah? Well, first of all, it means some things for Jesus and then it means some things for us. So for Jesus, here's what it means. Number one, if Jesus is the Messiah, it means that he is the king that was promised and prophesied in the line of David that will reign on David's throne forever. And we believe we will see that in the fulfillment when Christ returns and there's a thousand year reign on earth where he will reign on that throne. And then we will go into an eternal state and a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus will continue to reign as king. We'll talk more about that in week three of this series on Christmas Eve. Secondly, if Jesus is the Messiah, it means that he is the son of God. Because it was prophesied, it was said of the Messiah that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you have over 300 prophecies about one man made hundreds and hundreds of years before his time, and he fulfills every single one of them. It makes sense that he would be the son of God, right? Because who else could fulfill and predict and fulfill the future but God alone? And so Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, the son of God. Secondly, what does it mean for us? Number one, it means we have a new mediator between us and God. We have a high priest. We'll talk more about this next week. But we have a new mediator who's made intercession for us. Which means he's taken our punishment for sin upon himself. And he's mediated a new relationship between us and God. He's made us right with God through the payment of our fine for sin. So, so we've got a new mediator and it was said of Jesus that he would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. So we have a new mediator. Secondly, we have a new covenant. You and I have a, as followers of Jesus, we have a new covenant. It's a new way of relating to God, worshiping God, following God, serving God. In Romans seven, verse four through six, it talks about how we've got this new covenant. It's a new way of serving God where God places his spirit within us and he moves us. We wouldn't, we didn't want these things before. We didn't do them before. We had the list, we had the law before, we had this external pressure to perform before, but now we've got his Holy Spirit inside of us and it moves us. We've got an internal motivation now, God's presence, his spirit inside of us that moves us to follow him and worship him and love him. And so now I want to do these things because I've been changed from the inside out. I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. It's the new covenant. When God said he would take our heart of stone out that rebels against him and he would give us a heart of flesh that wants what he wants, that's sensitive to the things of God. 
That's the new covenant. We've got a new way of serving and worshiping and relating to God. And Paul says in, in Romans 7, verse 4 through 6, we've died to the law and we've been born again. We have the spirit of God living inside. And now there's a new way. There's a new way. It's the new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, moving us to follow God and to, to worship God. And then third, and this is where we'll kind of hang out for the rest of our time. Last, what does it mean for us? It means peace. If Jesus is the Messiah, it means peace. Isaiah 53 said that the punishment that the Messiah would bear would bring us peace. What, what, what is this peace? Well, in Isaiah, it's the Hebrew word shalom, the peace of God. That word would be used again when the angels would show up with the shepherds and they would say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Shalom, peace. It's the peace of God. Now, this peace is not the way we tend to think of it, the absence of war. Shalom, the, the peace of God that has been brought to us because of the Messiah coming, that peace is a peace that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 where God told Abraham, hey, listen, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you famous and great. And through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. This peace of God is a blessing kind of peace. It's a flourishing kind of peace. It's not just the absence of war. It's a blessing in your life. It's a flourishing in your life. This was the peace that Israel longed for, that the Messiah would bring about. Shalom, the peace of God, blessing and flourishing. As opposed to the peace that they knew of at this day, in this time, in the time of Christ, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which was only experienced through the defeat of your enemies, through the subjugation of your enemies, and by the force of your will over your people and over your enemies. It was called the peace of Rome, Caesar's peace, Pax Romana. I don't know, this peace is totally different. This is a flourishing. This is a blessing. And it was our promise that we would receive this peace through our Messiah. Isaiah would write in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called, watch this, the Messiah. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. So there's going to be a child that's going to be born. And he's going to be our mighty God. Our everlasting father. And then watch this. Prince of peace. Now the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. This Messiah will be the prince of 
peace and of his peace, there will be no end. And so here's what I want you to know tonight. Peace isn't a place. Peace isn't a possession. It's not property. It's not a popular profile. It's not politics. It's not a policy. It's not a peace plan. It's not a president. Peace is not found in any of those things. Peace is found in a person. In fact, peace is a person. The person of Jesus, the Messiah, not not just some random person, not in finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or, or a spouse or, or, or even having a child. Th- those people are, are great and they are to be enjoyed. Those relationships are to be enjoyed in their right spot, in their right place, in their right priority. But, the, but peace is not found in those things. Peace is a person. Jesus, the person of Jesus. And so I want you to know tonight that the solution to your peace problem is a person, the Prince of Peace. And so catch this tonight. The Messiah is my peace. This is why this is so important. It's why it's important for Israel. It's why it's important for the Gentile. That's you and I. The Messiah, the Prince of Peace is my peace. Peace is a person. I'm not gonna find it in any other place. Peace is a person. The Messiah is my peace. The Messiah is my peace. And so who is him? Him is Jesus, the Messiah, our Prince of Peace. Whose child is this? Mary, Joseph, he's he's your child. God, the Father, he's your child. Israel, he's your child too. Paul makes it clear in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that as the, the Gentile, the church, we are to desire the salvation of Israel. We're to pray for that that they would accept Jesus as their Messiah and they would submit to God's way of making us righteous. And so Israel, he's your child. He's your Messiah. And then because Paul makes it clear in Romans 4, you and I as Gentile, we are children of the promise. We are Abraham's children. He is our Messiah. He is your child. He is your Messiah. And so he is your peace. The Prince of Peace. The solution to your peace problem is the peacemaker. The Prince of Peace. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and tonight... As I say that, I'm sure many of us would say, that's awesome, that's great, but, I, but I'm not experiencing peace in, in this part of my life. It could be a marriage, it could be 
at work, it could be in your finances, it could be a relationship, it could be with a child. It's not, there's no peace there. It's actually, it's more like war, chaos. But tonight, as that old Christmas song says, that through Jesus, you can sleep in heavenly peace. How, how can, how can I do, how can I sleep? I haven't gotten a good night of sleep in forever. But tonight, you can sleep in heavenly peace if you will submit your life to the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace. The Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, make your request known to God and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Zechariah said when John the Baptist was born and speaking of this forerunner, this person that would come and, and prepare the way of the Lord, he said this, that speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, that his peace will guide our feet. And so tonight, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's at war in your life right now, whatever is chaotic in your life right now, you can know tonight that the Prince of Peace wants to come and guard your heart and mind with peace and guide you tonight with peace and guide you into peace. But you gotta to realize tonight that peace is only found in a person, the person of Jesus. And so you need to invite Jesus into your marriage to bring peace to your marriage tonight. You need to invite Jesus to come and bring peace into the workplace tonight, into your finances tonight, into that relationship tonight. You need to invite the Prince of Peace to come and to be Lord in that situation, in that relationship. And if you do that, the Bible says he will guard you with peace and he will guide you into Jesus was leaving he, the world. He told his disciples, listen, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have war. You will have chaos. But he said this, my peace, I leave with you, my peace. And those who are in me will have this some of you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time tonight and submit to his way of making you righteous or right with God so that you can have peace with God. And then others of us tonight need to submit ourselves to Jesus and to his way so that we can experience the peace, that shalom, that flourishing, that blessing that the Prince of Peace wants to bring to you tonight. And so God, tonight, would you come and fill this room with your presence? And Jesus, would every one of us just feel your presence, the person of Jesus here with us, our Prince of Peace, so that tonight we might rest. We might sleep in heavenly peace.